We start this week with an FBI arrest. Ooh, you've got me hooked. Who is it? One of the most powerful people in Ohio. We're here today to announce the arrest of Larry Householder, the Speaker of the House of the State of Ohio, and four other defendants for racketeering in relation to what is likely the largest bribery money laundering scheme ever perpetrated against the people of the state of Ohio. That's a U.S. attorney leveling some very serious charges against a very powerful Republican politician from Ohio, Larry Householder. And that happened back in July. The conspiracy was to pass and maintain a $1.5 billion bailout in return for $61 million in dark money that were used for various things. Since the late 90s, Householder has been in office in Ohio, and he's used his elected position for corrupt ends. He's violated campaign finance laws, and back in 2004, he was already under investigation by the FBI for alleged money laundering. But this time, the charges are next level. The FBI said they'd never seen a political bribery plot like this in Ohio's history. It was the kind of racketeering scheme we'd normally think would be created by mobsters, not politicians. An FBI agent actually made that comparison himself. This is the first time racketeering charge has been used on a public official in the Southern District of Ohio. RICO charges are reserved for the most egregious conduct. You've often probably heard about it in a lot of mob cases. But this case is certainly justified for RICO. Okay, so I'm letting my mind wander to kind of Al Capone territory with this whole mob reference. I mean, what was this conspiracy to pass a $1.5 billion bailout all about? Casinos, construction... Oh no, Catherine. Something much more exciting. Power plants. They were going to bail out power plants. Yup, failing power plants. Those power plants were owned in part by First Energy, an Ohio-based utility and one of the strongest opponents of clean energy in the country. The FBI alleges that Larry Householder and four other men conspired with First Energy to funnel millions of dollars into an organization that benefited them personally and politically, all in exchange for a big political favor. And that was with the passage of House Bill 6, the Ohio legislation which gutted Ohio's clean energy and energy efficiency standards while also bailing out First Energy's two nuclear plants as well as the OVAC coal plants. That's Neil Wagner, an advocate with the Sierra Club in Ohio. He watched with horror back in 2019 as Larry Householder, the newly minted Speaker of the House, rushed a bill through the legislature that gutted Ohio's renewable energy and energy efficiency laws, all while propping up failing coal plants in the state. That's right. I remember, Leah, that you wrote an article about that for Vox and If I remember correctly, you called it the worst energy bill of the 21st century. I sure did. And that's because Republicans killed policies that were saving people money and replaced them with a billion dollars in subsidies for aging power plants. We knew that a lot of dark money was being spent on passing this terrible bill in Ohio. 
But it was only when the FBI arrested Householder that the allegations got tied to First Energy, and it became clearer where exactly this dark money was coming from. Yeah, what happened in Ohio is just staggering in the level of corruption and influence and utility capture and how the amount of money that these utilities have, like First Energy has, can be deployed in a very strategic and aggressive way to provide bailouts to the coal and nuclear plants and to really cheapen and damage our democracy. And can you talk about householders' ties to the Trump administration? When the Trump administration came into power, you see First Energy's private plane starts making a lot of trips to D.C., way more trips than it had in the years previous to the election of President Trump. And one of those first trips to D.C. to President Trump's inauguration had no other than Larry Householder on the plane. What's happening in Ohio, this investigation into corruption, the corporate influence, and the power plant bailouts, they're all part of a broader story playing out under the Trump administration. In this episode, we're going to tell you that story. We're going to look at how dirty energy companies are raking in billions of government dollars thanks to the Trump regime, and it's all happening at our expense. This is A Matter of Degrees. I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And together, we're telling stories for the climate curious. So, Leah, what exactly do a corruption investigation and utility power plays in Ohio have to do with Trump? We'll get back there, I promise. But before we return to Ohio, I want to go to a different state, Colorado. That's where 4% of America's crude oil is currently being produced. And it's primarily coming from fracking. That's a drilling technique that injects pressurized liquids underground to break up rock and extract fossil fuels. There are 60,000 oil and gas wells operating in Colorado, mostly concentrated in one place. So I live in Colorado, and 90% of the oil in the state here is produced in one county, Weld County, that is just down the road from me. That's Colorado resident and investigative journalist Antonia Yuhas. She covers the oil industry. She's written two books on the subject. And earlier this summer, Antonia profiled a woman named Patricia Nelson, who lives in a Latinx community in Weld County. Where she lives is just inundated with fracking operations. They're just everywhere. But what really turned the tide for her was when her son, Diego, was getting ready to go to a middle school around the corner from where she lives. A fracking company started plans to produce oil literally just on the other side of the fence from the playground at the school. And they were setting up for multiple frack sites. And, you know, they already lived in a neighborhood that was inundated with these operations, but to have to go to school and to experience that every single day, that had been the the final straw. What did she do? She started organizing. Patricia is now one of the most outspoken opponents of fracking in the area. She's been a constant presence in courtrooms and local meetings, speaking up for the most vulnerable people who are surrounded by industrial pollution. But then COVID struck, and suddenly she was vulnerable. Patricia had had to leave her job before the pandemic for health reasons. So when the pandemic hit, 
She wasn't eligible for the uh, unemployment benefits because she had already left her job. Her husband lost his job. They've had to deplete their 401k as a result of the pandemic. Like millions of other Americans, Patricia did not get a lot of government help during the pandemic. She's had to kind of make it on her own, just like a lot of people around this country. But you know who the government has been helping out? Fossil fuel companies in Colorado. They got help from the government. They got millions in pandemic relief. And this wasn't just happening there. Fossil fuel companies around the country took in billions of dollars in government handouts during the pandemic. So while she's depleting her retirement savings account, the oil companies where she lives have been bailed out. And they are part of a national bailout of companies that have received billions of dollars through what what are really amount to covert ways of getting money to the oil and gas industry because the Trump administration and uh, Republicans in Congress had sought overt bailouts for the industry. This honestly makes me so angry, like trying very hard not to curse on this podcast angry. I mean, American families are getting absolutely hung out to dry by the current leadership in Washington while fossil fuel companies line their coffers even more then they're already lined. I mean, how in the world did this happen, Leah? You know, this is the kind of maddening story that would get a lot more attention in more normal times. But we're not living in normal times. We're living in chaos. And that's part of why this happened. The story goes back to the CARES Act. That was the $2 trillion federal stimulus bill that Congress passed back in March. Right. March was a moment of shock for all of us. We had sudden sweeping lockdowns, unemployment suddenly leapt to historic levels. And there was one week in March, I remember, when three million Americans in just one week filed for unemployment benefits. And with all that going on, it was a rare moment when lawmakers in Washington, D.C. actually banded together to pass a bill. Everything happens at once. And I think that Pretty much everybody that watches Washington saw this CARES Act as that opportunity to do it because all of a sudden Republicans and Democrats had interests that were aligned and people were all scared. And when members of Congress get scared, things can start to happen. That's Alexis Goldstein, a policy analyst with Americans for Financial Reform. She's a former insider, a Wall Street financial analyst who defected to become a Wall Street watchdog. And her expertise is in part in climate finance. I really noticed that there was an opportunity for action when I listened to Mitch McConnell's speech on the Senate floor before the CARES Act passed. That was in mid-March, after a particularly hellish day for the markets. And he's basically crying. And this is not a guy, you know, like, I pay attention to him. He's the Senate Majority Leader. He's not someone who typically betrays emotion of any kind. He's very... You know, he talks very (laughs) sort of monotone. People are watching this spectacle. I'm told the futures market is down 5%. I'm also told that that's when trading stops. And he was very upset. He was like, my staff are telling me that the futures have halted trading and the Democrats are, you know, messing around and we don't know what's going on and the markets, the markets, the markets. And then all of a sudden, the Democratic leader and the Speaker of the House shows up. So we're fiddling here, fiddling with the emotions of the American people, fiddling with the markets, fiddling with our health care. 
And that, you'll notice, is what makes policymakers move. Because policymakers are typically millionaires, right? Your average member of Congress is a millionaire. They really care what happens to the stock market. Um, You know, 47% of us have absolutely no exposure to the stock market at all, not even in a retirement account, not in a pension. Um, But members of Congress care a lot. I think it's so funny. It's like, what does Mitch McConnell get upset about or cry about? It's not like people (laughs) dying from forest fires or hurricanes or, you know, the pandemic itself. It's like the stock market crashing. (laughs) That is so depressing. Yep. (laughs) Yep. It is really depressing. And if I think back to how this bill was originally framed, it was supposedly intended to give emergency relief to small businesses and to people who were suddenly out of work. So did it actually do any of that? In part, it did authorize $1,200 checks for low and middle income Americans. It created some additional unemployment benefits, but you probably realize those have long since run out. And it created this new policy called the Paycheck Protection Program. That was meant as a lifeline for small businesses, but as we'll hear, it ended up morphing into something quite different. People like Alexis were watching that happen, and they quickly realized that the stimulus money would mostly go to rich people or corporations, including fossil fuel companies. And that money would have virtually no restrictions on how it was spent. So, okay, so then the bill starts getting put together. And were you following what was being put in the bill? And, and what were you thinking in terms of how they designed some of the provisions in that in that bill? Well, I was, but it was sort of like it happened really fast and everyone felt like they were over the barrel and had to, you know, approve of it. And I think a lot of us were trying to sound the alarm Um, about putting some accountability measures into it. And there were some accountability measures put into it, but only for one industry, which was the airline industry. So they did this separate, speaking of bailouts, bailout just for the airline industry. I think they got $25 billion from the CARES Act. And they said, you have to keep your workers on staff until the end of September. You can't do crazy executive compensation. You can't buy back your stock. And I think you can't pay out dividends. Congress could have put those rules on every other company in the CARES Act, and they didn't. They only did it for airlines. And I personally think that that was a big mistake. That mistake ended up coming back to benefit fossil fuel companies in a big way. So surely there were people in the room trying to create some level of accountability, right? There were. If you think back to the discussions that were happening at that time, There were Democrats who were raising alarm bells and saying, hey, we need to push for financial accountability and also environmental accountability in this law. And I spoke to one of those people, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democratic senator from Rhode Island. Can you just explain to us what some of the ideas that you had uh, were for trying to address climate change during the pandemic? Well, we had some pretty simple ones like If we're going to spend billions of dollars bailing out the airlines, maybe they should start cleaning up their act. And we got completely stuffed by the airlines on all of that, which was very frustrating. And while Democrats like Senator Whitehouse were frantically trying to write provisions into the bill that would help people and the environment, they didn't notice that Senate Republicans had already slipped in other language that would do the exact opposite. It got into the bill at the very beginning, the original draft it was buried in. 
So the COVID bailouts for frackers that Antonia mentioned earlier, they were hidden in the CARES Act the whole time. Yes. It was a provision that allowed massive tax write-offs for corporations and extremely wealthy people with no strings attached. And most Democrats didn't even know that that provision was in the bill until it was too late. As we were adding things, nobody went back and said, that has to come out. We were busy trying to get more things in that helped people. And a lot of people didn't even know that was in the bill because the bill wasn't produced until, you know, the, the very end. So it's a combination of us not looking hard enough and fighting hard enough and the other side burying it in the most strategically clever place. A sneaky tax loophole. Yes. And according to the Washington Post, that tax loophole resulted in $5 billion going to 133 corporations, many of them fossil fuel pipeline operators, refiners, and frackers. But that's just the start of the story. There were two more provisions in the COVID stimulus bill that transferred billions of taxpayer dollars into polluting industries. The second major source of that funding was the Paycheck Protection Program. And this was money that was supposed to help small businesses, and it certainly has supported some small businesses. But companies worth as much as $15 million, which is with as many as 1,500 employees, are eligible for loans of as much as $10 million. So, you know, to me, that's not a small mom and pop company that to me is a fairly large company. And a lot of oil companies were able to fit in through that framework. In order to get that money, companies were supposed to keep their workers on payroll. They were supposed to keep people employed. But we're not even sure if that happened. And what we found that was at least 10 percent of the oil and gas companies reported either no jobs retained as a result of of receiving the loan, or they left that question blank. So there's potentially at least, you know, 10% of these funds that went out to oil and gas companies that didn't result in protecting workers at all, which is what the the program is supposed to do. Wow. I mean, Paycheck Protection Program seems like it should be a Paycheck Protection Program. I don't know. Call me crazy. And I'm almost terrified to ask, Leah, what was the third way that the stimulus bill lined the pockets of fossil fuel companies? Was it just driving up to the doors of CEOs and handing them giant checks with a bunch of balloons? (laughs) No, it was more like backing up a dump truck full of money with the Federal Reserve logo printed on the side of the truck. If you're not familiar with it, the Federal Reserve is America's central bank, and it's also where $75 billion landed as part of the CARES Act. Here's Alexis explaining that idea. I wanted to pay close attention to that, and $75 billion of the CARES Act money was specifically a down payment for the Fed to then go ahead and use that. And the Fed, because they are the central bank, um, can leverage that and essentially print more money to put on top of it 10 to 1. So what did the Fed do with the money? Well, part of it went into buying the debt of fossil fuel companies. You know, a lot of these fossil fuel companies, fracking companies, oil companies, they've been doing pretty poorly financially for years now, way before the pandemic. According to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, U.S. oil and gas companies were saddled with $72 billion of junk-rated debt at the start of 2020, before the pandemic began. And so the Fed used the coronavirus crisis to protect 
oil and gas companies struggling for nothing to do with the pandemic from having to pay off their debt. Yes, these companies, they made bad decisions before the pandemic, but they stuck us all with the bill. Alexis explained to me how that unfolded. So the Fed is supposed to be independent. And what's been happening to the Federal Reserve under the Trump administration? Have there been indications that it's really not that independent? There have. And the Fed is very sensitive to this criticism and will tell you it's not true. But my, I think the most solid example we have is one of the emergency programs that the Fed created in response to the pandemic. So they created 11. So it's really hard to keep track of them all. It starts to get to be an alphabet soup. But one of the alphabet soup entities was the Main Street Lending Program. And Senator Ted Cruz uh, was very unhappy with the restrictions the Fed put on the Main Street lending program um, because basically he thought it hurt small uh, oil producers. And the reason he argued that it hurt them is because it had a ban. If we gave you if you got a loan through the Main Street lending program initially, you were not allowed to use it to pay down other debt or refinance your existing debt. So he wrote a letter, and lo and behold, the Fed made the changes that Ted Cruz asked for, that the fossil fuel lobby asked for. And if you don't want to take it from me that they did that, you should take it from the energy secretary who went on Bloomberg television and said, we asked the Fed to make these changes, and the Fed made those changes, and thank you very much. So let me get this straight. When the central bank is buying up the junk debt of these oil and gas companies that are causing climate change, that means we, you, me, our listeners, the American people, we now own that debt, debt that is so worthless we literally call it junk. Exactly. We all now own debt of a bunch of fossil fuel companies. We as the public now own $17 million worth of Exxon bonds. You know, we, the public, own $28.5 million of energy transfer operating bonds, which is the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. So, and Marathon Petroleum is another one that comes to mind. They have, we, we, the public, own $15 million worth of Marathon Petroleum debt. But, you know, Marathon is probably one of the worst offenders when it comes to, like, terrible, terrible levels of air pollution, you know, in minority communities and at at at-risk communities. You know, in my view, they are really picking winners and losers in a way that I think is not uh, working towards a broader social good. The Federal Reserve and the public, by proxy, are buying debt of fossil fuel companies. And I would also say that that's sort of an implicit bailout. I mean... I don't want this. I do not want fossil fuel debt. I would love a pony, but I do not want some frackers' bad financial decisions on my books. Well, nobody asked us, Catherine. Nobody asked me or you if we thought this is a good idea to do or not. No, they did not. So, okay, we've got this junk debt. (laughs) And what does this all amount to? We've got the tax breaks, the paycheck protection funding, the Federal Reserve buyout. It leaves me wondering exactly how much money has the American taxpayer handed over to the fossil fuel industry? Well, that's a great question. And the thing is, we don't know. 
We don't know how much money has gone to the fossil fuel industry under the Trump administration during this pandemic. Alexis hasn't seen a full accounting. Antonia hasn't seen one. Even Senator Sheldon Whitehouse can't get a proper answer to that question. So do you have any sense of how much money exactly has gone to bail out the fossil fuel industry as part of the CARES Act? Uh, I don't I have not seen a complete review of that or a complete analysis, but I have no doubt that it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And, you know, this is taxpayer money at the end of the day. And yet yet we don't know what it's being spent on. We don't know how much is being spent. How come there's no transparency? Well, I think part of that is a matter of time. We haven't had the chance to really dig into it. Um, Part of it is that, at least in the Senate, we don't have committees that are willing to look into this stuff because the Republican chairman don't want any part of investigating the fossil fuel industry or creating any discomfort whatsoever in the fossil fuel industry. So they're not about to ask uncomfortable questions. My thesis is that the fossil fuel industry is the dominant funder of the Republican Party. Hard to prove because so much of it is dark money, which by definition is hard to assign to the donor. I would bet, if I had to make a bet, that the majority of the funding of the Republican Party comes from the fossil fuel industry. So when the majority of your funding as a party comes from one industry, you basically have become the political wing of that industry as opposed to an independent party. And that's the way we see them behave. So they're not about to ask uncomfortable questions. So we've got these huge bailouts, and a lot of the CARES Act was supposed to be for companies that were struggling because of the pandemic, right? Like restaurants that couldn't open. But we know that a lot of these fossil fuel companies, especially these smaller fracking companies, were doing poorly even before the pandemic. So what do you think? Is this money that's going to ripple out across the economy and keep people employed? Or is it really money that's kind of like being lit on fire? I would say more the latter. I mean, when you look at the trajectory of the fossil fuel industry, the coal industry is more or less dead already. Oil is going to be the next to go. Gas will last a little bit longer, but they're all headed in the same direction because none of them can compete with renewables on price and on convenience, even with a massive subsidy of getting to pollute for free. So take away that subsidy and they become real zombie companies, dead man walking. So you know where this ends and throwing money down that rat hole doesn't seem to be helpful, particularly if you're not using it to train workers, to transition to new fuels, to uh, invest in the new technologies of carbon removal that can help balance our planet's atmosphere again. All of that would be a far, far better place for the money to have gone than into the fossil fuel rat hole. Zombie companies and rat holes. That is really not where I want our tax dollars going, especially not when, as we talked about in the last episode, there is so much good and important work to do to move climate solutions forward. But to keep telling this story, we need to go back to Ohio. Okay, right. Back to the alleged mob-style racketeering to save a handful of crappy power plants and the FBI arresting some very powerful men who, shocker, are at the heart of the shenanigans. Exactly. We're going back to that story. Because... 
the account that we just heard from Senator Whitehouse, that's not an aberration. That's not a bug. It's a feature of the Trump administration. That's how the Trump administration works. They are in the pockets of fossil fuel companies, and they have been doing their bidding since day one. Yeah, we all remember that one of Trump's big campaign promises was to bring back the declining coal industry. He was extremely explicit about that over and over and over again. And right after he took office, Trump's team tried every backdoor maneuver they could think of. It was heavily influenced by two Ohio-based fossil fuel companies, Murray Energy and First Energy. If you haven't heard of them before, Murray is one of America's biggest coal mining companies. And First Energy, that's the utility we talked about earlier. They have 6 million customers and they're heavily invested in coal. First Energy is the company that allegedly funded House Speaker Larry Householder's front group. And they're the ones who chartered all those private plane trips to Washington. That corporate jet was just flying back and forth from Ohio to Washington, D.C. after Trump took office. There were 31 trips in 2017 and 2018. And there were a lot of meetings that were happening with very senior Trump administration officials with these coal companies. I asked Sierra Club's Neil Wagner to explain the Trump administration's open-door policy for fossil fuel companies. Right. So when the Trump administration comes in and, as you pointed out, starts to really t- or start talking about the need to save coal and how they're going to bring back coal, what you saw is big energy companies, big coal interests from around the country going and starting to lobby them. In Ohio, that was Bob Murray of Murray Energy, who went to D.C. and delivered to Secretary Perry a list of, I believe, it was 17 different items that he thought, or Murray Energy thought, would be helpful to bring back the uh, the coal industry. Really just a list of provisions that would weaken environmental protections and increase costs on customers to keep these polluting facilities online. At the same time, First Energy, which through their supposedly deregulated uh, generation side, Uh, was making a bunch of trips to D.C. and trying to set up meetings with Secretary Perry as well to try to find a way to um, get bailouts for their coal and their nuclear facilities. And, you know, they really, just like we'd already seen in Ohio, uh, hitting every angle possible, stoking fears, um, providing misinformation... These fossil fuel companies and dirty electric utilities, they had full access to the Trump administration. I mean, they had them on speed dial. When you look at the highest people in the Trump administration, they have direct ties to the fossil fuel industry. Take Scott Pruitt, for example. If you remember, that was Trump's first EPA director, and he had worked with Bob Murray to fight Obama's clean power rules. And the current EPA head, the guy who replaced Scott Pruitt, Andrew Wheeler, that guy was a lobbyist for Murray Energy for nearly a decade. It's really bad. I mean, the EPA is the entity that is supposed to make sure that our air and our water are clean. And the people who benefit the most from polluting industries are holding the reins of what the EPA does. I mean, it is just mind-boggling. And it's not just happening at the EPA. You know, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, 
His former campaign manager, after he was done working for Rick Perry, he went and became a key lobbyist for First Energy. And you can just imagine that he had a relationship with his own boss and he could get a meeting whenever he wanted with the Secretary of Energy. So with all this access, what did they try to do? Well, they did a bunch of things. Some of them worked and some of them didn't. They tried to change the rules for electricity markets. They tried to create emergency orders to keep old, dirty power plants from closing. And they tried to push a report within the Department of Energy claiming that a lack of fossil fuels would destabilize the grid. And while all of this was happening, First Energy was moving closer and closer to bankruptcy. The fact, though, that that the First Energies of the world, the First Energy itself thought, we can make this happen. We think we have the political will to get this done. It really says a lot about how much influence they understood and they believe to have over the Trump administration. So literally, it's like a pay-to-play scheme where these companies are giving money to fund the Trump campaign and get Trump into office. And then they're expecting and gaining access to make their case about here are the 17 steps that we need to save the coal industry. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening, or it has happened. Uh, The utilities, these dirty energy interests, they are putting a ton of money, just a, a, in some cases, unfathomable amount of money into getting the people that they think will give them the policies they need to keep their dirty, uneconomic facilities operating. Now, the last I checked, coal plants are closing at record rates, and the Trump administration did not, in fact, save the coal industry. No, it did not. In fact, more coal plants have closed under the Trump administration than under the Obama administration. And we've seen the fastest decline in coal-powered electricity in any presidential term under Trump. And that's because coal is just not very competitive anymore. It's really quite expensive to keep these dirty plants open. They require hundreds of millions of dollars of additional ratepayer money. So when I say these coal plants are uneconomic, what we see is in the energy markets, they the coal plants themselves cost more money to produce power than the new resources that are coming online and replacing it. Again, wind, solar, geothermal. These sources are coming online and they are more competitive than coal. In other words, they need bailouts. They need bailouts. And even with an administration like Trump's willing to bend laws and get very creative, companies like First Energy still face the reality of this shift across the market to renewable energy. And then, of course, just in the past couple of years, as the utilities were not getting traction at the Public Utility Commission, as First Energy was not getting traction on the federal level, they started to look to the Ohio legislature. And that's how we ended up with House Bill 6. So, Leah, I feel like we've won some and we've lost some. The coal bailouts at the federal level didn't work. And the corruption in Ohio was uncovered by law enforcement. But we still have a law on the books in Ohio that destroys the state's clean energy industry. And nationally, Republicans ended up with an even bigger policy bonanza. The billions of dollars we've been talking about that went to fossil fuel energy companies from that COVID stimulus bill. What do we make of this? 
I think that the Trump administration has presided over a massive fossil fuel bailout. And it's just sad to me that so few people know what happened in that CARES Act, that the COVID pandemic stimulus that was supposed to be helping everyday Americans get back to work or afford to pay their energy bills or afford to buy groceries. Instead, so much of that money went to dirty fossil fuel companies. And those companies, like we talked about, they were doing terribly before the pandemic in the first place. I find myself thinking about the alternative path, the different path we could have taken back in March and what that might have looked like for this country. What if things were different? What if the pandemic response had actually happened under a Biden presidency, say, or really under the leadership of anyone who takes the issue of climate change seriously? You know, I feel the same way and had pretty much the same thought. And that's why I wanted to talk with Tamara Tolza Laughlin, the North American director of 350.org. It's an organization you might remember from episode one. Uh, what I can tell you is that our our current administration has thrown good money after bad, as my grandmother would say. So after closure after closure of coal plant, uh, there have been such flagrant abuses of of what would be determined uh, a good business model. Um, Ohio was the recent example. Tamara has been paying very close attention to the terrible things the Trump White House has been doing to the environment and public health. But she's also helping to imagine a different path, a different world. A just recovery, one that would focus on fairness and taking care of all Americans instead of just lining the pockets of a few already very wealthy, mostly white men. And I spoke to her about how we could build a different kind of recovery. But we started first with the sad reality of the current moment and what the Trump administration has been up to. And of course, you know, before the Trump administration, right now we're giving like $20 billion a year in direct fossil fuel subsidies. Can you talk a bit about 350's campaigns to try to change these giveaways to the fossil fuel industry and get us moving in a better direction? Yeah, so we've we've worked on divestment since before it was sexy. Uh, we're not the only ones. But in general, the idea uh, started with student movements towards moving resources from things that kill us to things that support us. A good function of that work is how we do it in the government, how all of our dollars, our taxpayer dollars, our money that goes into the commons, uh, goes into artificially depressing the price of coal, oil and gas, of fossil fuels. Uh, it's pretty gross to look at the government being a partner uh, for a long time in artificially subsidizing the worst possible way to deliver energy to communities, uh, to businesses, to institutions and building our whole government relationship to energy production on this false notion that fossil fuels are cheap. So at 350, we focused a lot on uh, the financial flows, uh, looking at how we stop money from going to places where it shouldn't and why and, and reroute it to work that we want to do. Because for all of the programs we cannot pay for, we are spending that same money on stuff that we know is, isn't working for us. And so speaking of money, if we, you know, hadn't made the CARES Act into a fossil fuel bailout, what could we have spent the money on instead? You know, there was so much discussion about how expensive the Green New Deal was, and yet we found trillions of dollars in the uh, couch cushion, so to speak. So 
what could we have spent the money on if we hadn't made it into a giant fossil fuel bailout? Well, as a climate person, I have no choice but to say the obvious truth is a Green New Deal. But underneath that, what is that? I mean, like, I think people get stuck on labels, but the Green New Deal is jobs, infrastructure and human health. The infrastructure in this country is failing. Like you could literally fall through a bridge in a bunch of places. The roads are in crazy disrepair. Human health isn't the thing you could skip on because you pay for it, whether you're burying people, housing them or imprisoning them. So all of these things that fit into having a good job, which means being able to support yourself in a way that isn't poisoning you or your community. So jobs, infrastructure and human health is what's under the lid on Green New Deal. And we could have spent money on that. I think there's quite a bit we could do with money if we weren't busy uh, buffeting the the golden parachutes of evil people who want to burn up the planet. So super excited to get that opportunity in the next year and have an election that could give us the opportunity to, to make some better investments instead of continuing to invest in stuff that doesn't work. I mean, the great irony of all of this, Leah, is that You know, one of the favorite Republican talking points about why climate solutions won't work, why renewable electricity isn't viable, is that it will cost too much money. But obviously, money is not the issue. There is plenty of money. No, money is not the problem. When we need to bail out the fossil fuel industry, suddenly we got money for days. But when it comes to climate action... You know, where we're actually investing in jobs, in industries, in clean air, all these things that will actually pay us back. We got no money for that. So there's a real lack of fairness, really, in how we treat the climate problem versus how we treat handouts to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, climate solutions pay themselves back in public health benefits alone, right? It's it's not just that we've been flushing money down the fossil fuel toilet, right? It is that that money could actually be helping us solve real needs that people have right now. And and instead of doing that, we're just deepening the inequality that already exists in this country. And it just feels to me like such an incredibly wasted opportunity. And I actually really love that one of the takeaways that the youth climate movement has drawn from this whole situation, the pandemic, the bailouts, is that all of the arguments about money are false arguments and they're not going to put up with them anymore. So they are going to insist that all the money we're able to find for the fossil fuel industry, we find that money to actually build a just and livable future. And we make our lives, their lives, everyone's lives better in the near term in the process. Because we seem to always have money for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, think about fossil fuel subsidies. They are $20 billion a year. And we have them year after year after year for the industry for like more than a century. How come we never have money or support for clean energy jobs, for clean energy industries? And it just feels like such a waste of that money because these are not the industries of the future. You know, they're not keeping people employed in good paying jobs. They're harming our health. They're harming our climate stability. These are terrible industries. 
What if instead of a big fossil fuel bailout, we had a big clean energy investment? You know, that's what we could be seeing on the agenda in 2021. Well, extremely timely that we have an election around the corner. Millions of people have already voted, sending in their absentee ballots or voting early. And this really is a chance to, among other things, vote in climate leadership. Yeah, we got an election in just a couple days now. And, you know, the thing I really want to ask you, Catherine, before we close this, have you figured out who you're going to vote for? Well, Leah, that's probably the easiest question you're ever going to ask me. I most certainly know who I'm ticking the box for. And actually, this will give us something to unpack when we have our post-election special episode of this podcast. Yeah, the next time you hear from us, we're going to be doing a quick election reaction and talking about what the outcomes will mean for climate action in 2021. And after that episode dropping next week, we'll come back with four more episodes this season. A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Leah Stokes. And by me, Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Sydney Bartone, and Stephen Lacey produced the show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and composed our theme song. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalak Sono. A special thanks to the funders and supporters who made this show possible. The Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, UC Santa Barbara, and others. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or any other place you get your shows. Or go to our website, DegreesPod.com. And you can find both of us, the pod, and our production team on Twitter. You'll find our accounts on the website and in the show notes. And if you're digging the podcast so far, please share it with your friends, your family, and push it out on social media. And stay with us as we tell more stories for the climate curious.